0: Welcome to Hoover. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Michael McFall. I'm a uh, professor of political, I'm reading my notes. Who am I? I'm a, <laughs> I'm a professor of political science. I'm the Peter and Helen Bing Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution, and I'm also the director of the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies, all here at Stanford. It's great to be live. It's great to be in person. Amy, I think you said this is your third in-person event, and this is our first home event here at Stanford, so we're really excited to be here to celebrate this fantastic book, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, the History and Future of American Intelligence. And by the way, could I just say, isn't that a great title? Um, <laughs> Amy has some really great titles of other books. She she thinks about the titles. They matter. And I'm going to say it now, and I'm going to say it at the end of my talk. We only get these kinds of books, these giant books filled with data, filled with analysis, written and published if people buy these kinds of books. Because if you don't buy them, Princeton and others are not going to publish them in the future. So I'm going to tell you now, buy this book. Buy it for your friends, get your relatives to buy it so that they get published in the future, and I'm going to end on that too. But we're here to celebrate this book that Amy has written. It's, it's, it's been a book in the, a long time in the making. Um, uh, just to remind everybody, Amy is the Morris Arnold and no- Nona Jean Cox Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. She's also a professor of political science by courtesy and also a senior fellow over at FSI. She has uh, written about lots of things, but she is really, I think, one of our country's leading experts on intelligence matters. And in this book, she tries to wrestle with the challenges of doing this kind of work given the new technological innovations we have, some of which are good for intelligence and some of which are bad. And you're going to hear a lot more about that right now. I want to emphasize, I've written some books myself in my life. Uh, it's really hard to write books. It's a lot of work. Most social sciences scientists only write one book. It's usually their dissertation. They're lucky they publish it. I am in awe of Amy that she, doesn't, she hasn't stopped, that she keeps writing these books and these very serious books. And so we should celebrate this day and celebrate this book uh, launch here at Stanford with Amy. We are very fortunate to have in conversation with Amy to talk about the book. Actually, I have, I have five paragraphs here about our moderator today. Um, it's ridiculous. How many people in the world do you know that if you just say their first name, everybody knows who they are? I think there's like four in the world. One of them is a person named Condi, and we're really grateful that Dr. Condalisa Rice Professor Condoleezza Rice, Director of the Hoover Institution, Condoleezza Rice is here with us today. And by the way, Condi also is somebody who's written a lot of books and keeps writing books, and I think that is a testimony to what we're supposed to do in places like the Hoover Institution, not just, no disrespect, Madam Secretary, uh, retire after you are the Secretary of State or National Security Advisor, but continue to be engaged in producing research that has impact on, uh, in this case, our intelligence community and American national security. So this is gonna be a fantastic conversation. Amy and Condi, the floor is yours.
1: Well, I wanna thank Mike for that wonderful introduction. Uh, Mike, I assume that one of the four is LeBron, would that be, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm not quite in that category, I can tell you that. Well, I am absolutely delighted and honored, indeed, to be here with uh, Amy Ziegert. To celebrate her wonderful new book. I do want to emphasize what Mike said, which is the book is for sale, please uh, do buy it. Um, It's an extremely important book uh, at this time in our history when we have so many challenges and the importance of the intelligence, the information, the analysis uh, that our policy makers have uh, at their disposal uh, using the full range of technological innovation that is now available to the, uh, to the intelligence community, the book couldn't be more timely, Amy. And so I'm not going to start with the timely question. We'll come to that one in a moment. But I'm going to reveal something very important. Amy was my Ph.D. student in graduate school. And so, Amy, you might want to say just a word about uh, how we met and the relationship to this Book, which I learned from Amy a few days ago.
2: So this is a very special thing to come back as a former PhD student and now a colleague. But uh, the book actually started out as a moment of tough love. A very hard-driving doctoral advisor told me when I went into her office with breathless anticipation and enthusiasm, I found my dissertation topic. I'm going to write about the history of the National Security Council staff. And she said in a very diplomatic way, but I heard it as, that is a terrible dissertation topic. Uh, (laughs) You're a political scientist, you need to have a comparative set of cases, you need to look at variation in outcomes and explain why some agencies develop some ways and some develop other ways, go back to work. So I went back to the library next door, Green Library, and dug around in the basement for forever and came across the National Security Act of 1947. And that act created a number of crucial organizations for national security, including a little debated agency called the Central Intelligence Agency. And so it was a moment of tough love that set me on this path-dependent trajectory to spend the rest of my career mostly looking at U.S. intelligence. Well,
1: thank you. I appreciate that, Amy. And I'm glad you found a good dissertation topic. Eventually, it took a while. (laughs) Many years later. So, Amy, I'm going to start with a a general question. Um, We're a democracy. And uh, democracies are supposed to run on transparency. And intelligence agencies, by their very nature, cannot run on transparency. And so can you talk a little bit about how much citizens really do need to know about what is going on with intelligence agencies. Obviously not the deep secrets, but how do you think about the relationship between the citizen, the democracy, and intelligence
2: agencies? Well, we've talked about this before. You know, There's this tension between secret agencies and democratic accountability. And so when I started this book a long time ago, I was really struck by how little my students and how little Americans knew about how intelligence operates. Why do we care? I think we care for two reasons. Number one, it's a question of civics. If voters don't understand how these agencies operate and they don't care, members of Congress won't understand how these agencies operate and they don't care. They have to be incentivized to care. And now with technology, voters actually are intelligence customers. So one of the things I find in the book is that technology is transforming every aspect of intelligence, including who needs it. So voters need intelligence about foreign election interference tech company leaders need intelligence about cyber threats. So it's not just a matter of good government, it's a matter of their own personal need for intelligence as citizens of the country and as business leaders and members of society.
1: I remember very well um, after 9-11, there was a a debate really about how much to reveal about what we knew about coming threats, for instance, Uh, because there's always an issue of what do you do if you know And do you think that that is essentially a decision that needs to rest with the president, with the National Security Council? What role does Congress play, do you think, in making sure that this balance that we try to achieve in democracies between transparency and uh, the needs for intelligence agencies, where, where does that responsibility really rest?
2: Well, we certainly wouldn't want 535 members of Congress making decisions about what is revealed and what isn't on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. But when I think about what does good congressional oversight look like, and I asked members of Congress and staffers and members of the intelligence community this question, they mentioned several roles and we don't always think about all of them. Number one, the one we think about the most is make sure they're following the law. That's really important for Congress to do as a separate branch of government. But they also have to serve as a board of directors, setting strategic guidance for the intelligence community. They often don't do that. And then the one role that Congress can play uniquely, that the executive branch, I think, can't, is they have to serve as ambassadors between the secret community and the American people. They don't have a dog in the fight of the executive branch, but only members of Congress can have public hearings or say, I've seen the classified briefings, I know what's going on, I trust what what these intelligence programs are doing. Nobody else can do that.
1: And how well are they doing it?
2: Not very well. <laughs> so this is where I'm gonna put on my political science hat, Condi, yeah. and say most people look at oversight as ups and downs and it depends on who's in power. And I don't look at it that way. I look at it because I was very well trained here at Stanford. Um, I look at the systematic factors that make oversight always problematic. So what I find with the data that I tracked since the 1970s is oversight's always been weak. And it's weak because there are there's poor information there are weak incentives. There's no Iowa for intelligence, right? Everyone who's, comes, who's elected from Iowa has to care about agriculture because they won't get elected if they don't. There's no Iowa equivalent for intelligence. Um, and so and members of the committees can't even talk about what they do. So it's not an electoral winner for them. And that explains why oversight over long periods of time has always been pretty weak. Nobody uh, really gets a, a lot of political benefit by spending their time focusing on the intelligence community.
1: And you talk some, hear about the history of those failures of oversight. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that? Because we learned from the times that something went wrong. So can you talk a little bit about some of the cases that you have here?
2: Well, one which you know intimately was really the failed oversight in the 90s before 9-11. So I looked at what Congress asked about the intelligence community in the 10-year period between the end of the Cold War and the 9-11 attacks. And here the intelligence community is identifying terrorism as a threat, but Congress isn't asking questions like, do you have the resources you need? Are you focused actually on developing the strategic capabilities to track Al-Qaeda? Not once did they really seriously ask those questions. And when Bob Mueller was confirmed just a week before 9-11, his confirmation hearing to be FBI director, only one senator asked him about terrorism, and it was John Edwards. Nobody else did. They spent more time on kidnapping in the Midwest than they did on counterterrorism, And so what I found was that there were, were, the Congress wasn't asking the right questions about whether we had the intelligence community we needed for an evolving threat landscape. Yeah. Um,
1: I wanna talk a little bit um, about a big theme in your book, uh, which is, uh, you talk about congressional oversight, but of course, um, technology is moving along and it's not, always clear that Congress understands fully the technologies and the possibilities, and the intelligence agencies may not as well. Um, So I don't know how many of you watched Mark Zuckerberg's uh, testimony before the Senate. It was embarrassing, not for Mark Zuckerberg, but for the senators who seem not to have ever seen a smartphone. Um, So (laughs) talk a little bit first about how you see technology shaping uh, intelligence, and then Relating it to this question of oversight and pushing along, and in, in terms of even um, the ability to uh, use budgetary resources in a reasonable way to push technology along, talk a little
2: bit about technology um, and intelligence. So technology, and when we think about technology, what, what do I mean? I, it's a, we're living in a technological convergence where we have smartphones, internet connectivity, we have commercial satellites that offer incredible capabilities. You can see them playing out in the front pages of the newspaper today uh, with the um, pictures of uh, Russian forces moving into Ukraine, commercial satellite imagery. We see AI, quantum computing. So we have this technological moment, and it's driving what I call the five mores for intelligence. So how do these technologies actually change the intelligence business? Five mores. More threats, think about cyber threats moving across cyberspace that can threaten us from the comfort of their own laptops. More speed, the speed of relevance. Intelligence has to be at the speed of relevance and that's getting faster and faster. More data, these analysts are drowning in data. The amount of data on earth doubling every two years. More people or customers who need intelligence who don't have security clearances and don't work in the White House. And then there are more competitors. So anybody with a cell phone can collect and analyze and produce intelligence today. So relatively speaking our government agencies are losing their advantage in the intelligence business and that is a profound change for our intelligence community. And then that gets to Congress. So I actually counted up the number of engineers in Congress and the number of engineers in the US Congress is a depressing number, it's 32. Higher than you might think, but now imagine there are more than 200 members of Congress that are lawyers. No offense to the lawyers <laughs> in the audience. But when you think about the need to understand these technologies, how does encryption work? What does quantum computing mean? How, what is AI good at? What is it not good at? You have to understand some basic technological things. And we don't have that expertise walking in the door in Congress, and so if you don't have that expertise, you can't ask good questions. If you can't ask good questions, you can't have an effective intelligence community.
1: Well, and do we have the expertise walking into the doors of the intelligence agencies? Uh, The hunt for talent uh, has been a big theme. Um, If you think about uh, the the constraints on going to work for the intelligence agencies, uh, not to mention that remuneration doesn't look exactly like options in a high-flying startup, um, how do you think about the intelligence uh, the t- intelligence community and their ability to attract talent and what are they doing to attract that talent because this Engineering and scientific talent is more and more in demand.
2: It is, and it's a struggle, as you know, and it's a struggle not just for intelligence but for the Defense Department. So they're trying. You know, Director Burns has talked about an initiative. He's pay- paying a lot more attention to technology, CIA Director Bill Burns. He's talked about making it easier to get people in the door, having people go in and out so you don't have to be a lifer in the intelligence business. You can go in and then go to the private sector or vice versa. But it's really hard. And I will say, Condi, and, and you've had this experience too, you know, a lot of defense and intelligence officials come to, the, come to town. And I often say defense department officials love D words, destroy, defeat, degrade, dominate. Those are not the words of the valley. The <laughs> words of the valley are C words, create, collaborate, Right change. So there's a cultural disconnect often with these outreach efforts that is part of the challenge.
1: And you've been engaged in, uh, we, we kind of track two between uh, in, intelligence community, the Silicon Valley and the like. Do you want to talk a little bit about this lack of this ability to translate or this need to translate between the two.
2: So this is an initiative that H.R. McMaster and some others and I have been running at Hoover now for. We've had three of these tech track twos. And the idea is to have, as what I call them, the suits and the hoodies talking to each other in a more candid way. <laughs> (laughs) Um, Because the government and the private sector don't have a choice. They have to figure out a way to work together. Threats are across different sectors, particularly cyber threats. The government needs help and so does the private sector. And and the government in particular has to be able to adopt technology at a much faster rate. So we get them together, leaders in the suits and the hoodies get together, uh, off the record, and we have very candid conversations. Now, we're moving now beyond acting to, and now what are we going to do about it? And this talent piece is one of the key things that we've been talking about. Uh, How can we actually create new talent programs to get people in and out of these two domains so that each side better understands the other? They may not always agree, but they need to start from a place of common understanding.
1: Um, I'd like to go back for a moment, uh, Amy, to something that you were talking about, uh, which is this question of Classification, over-classification, open source. Uh, when I was a national security advisor, we were, I was uh, helping with uh, Israeli-Palestinian negotiations, and then I went on to be Secretary of State. And, and one of the problems that we had was that the um, Israelis had agreed to a settlement freeze. Uh, the Palestinians kept claiming that the settlements were continuing to grow. And so um, I took uh, Google Earth... And I showed it to the Israelis and I said, you see, I I think there is something moving laterally here. Uh, Now, if it's moving up, that's okay. And so every month we would have the Google Earth test with the Israelis about whether settlement activity was continuing. I didn't go to the intelligence agencies because it would have taken me 100 years to get it declassified. (laughs) And so I just used Google Earth,
2: open source. Open source, you were ahead of your time. <laughs> so, one of the, so one of the chapters in the book looks only at nuclear threats and open source or publicly available intelligence. And this ecosystem of organizations and individuals that are using publicly available information and Google Earth to track nuclear threats. And one of the key benefits of this world is exactly what you just said, shareability. Because if something's classified, you can't share it within the government and you can't share it with other governments. And so our colleague Sig Hecker, former physicist, former director of Los Alamos National Lab, who's here at Stanford, now does not have a security clearance because he's doing nuclear threat analysis and he wants to be able to share it. And he finds that he's much better able to do that without his clearance. Yeah.
1: And so open source is one part of the uh, equation over classification is the other part of the equation. You talk quite eloquent and uh, eloquently here about that. So absolutely a little lesson in overclassification. And
2: it's interesting because the Director of National Intelligence of Real Haynes just recently gave a speech talking about how overclassification was a national security issue, which is quite remarkable, actually, that she's taken this on as a topic. And overclassification basically makes us unable to know what we know, right? So there, you know, there's this wonderful investigation that the Washington Post did several years ago called Top Secret America, which looked at all this sort of classified uh, programs. And Jim Clapper, the former DNI, had this wonderful quote where he said, You know, there are so many special compartmented programs that the only person who has visibility into them all is God. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the guess, yes, that's the problem
1: of overclassification. Is it also the problem of so many intelligence agencies and differing rules? Uh, We had at last count something like 17 uh, that are roughly intelligence agencies. Uh, forget trying to get them to coordinate, but they actually are very protective of their own secrets. So even if you want to take something from this agency to that agency, it's very difficult. So you talk about the intelligence landscape and how many we have. This is just one of the problems with having uh, this many intelligence agencies. So I know you're not a huge fan of the um, the, um, change that we made to create a a director of national intelligence. I was on the task force that created it. Amy <laughs> thinks it was a bad idea. Would you like to go ahead and talk about that? Sometimes.
2: Amy? <laughs> sometimes we had this when we taught a class and I said, sometimes your professor is wrong. And Tony said, not this time. <laughs> <laughs> so my take on it, and I think I've been proven partially wrong, but not entirely wrong, is that the director of national intelligence was a bad idea whose time had come. <laughs> and by that, I meant that after every moment of great tragedy or intelligence failure, the natural inclination is to create another agency to fix the problems that existed before. But if the principal problem before 9-11 was coordination, which it was, between, within agencies as well as between them, creating another organization to coordinate the existing ones isn't necessarily going to solve the problem. And then the DNI had the same, it's the rewind the tape from the CIA's creation back in my doctoral dissertation. See how relevant it is? (laughs) Um, When the CIA was created, as you know, it was hobbled, the CIA director. Two things you need, power over money, power over people. CIA director never had that outside the CIA, so couldn't ride herd over the bureaucracy. Director of National Intelligence has the same challenge. So I think that this is a role with one hand tied behind its back. But it's done much better than I thought it would. And I think it's actually been uh, overall an improvement over what we See, had before. I, I, you are right. Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> well, and, in fact, though, but let me just dive into that a little bit, because one of the problems is that uh, we, we think of the CIA as the premier intelligence agency, but most of the budgetary resources actually reside under the Secretary of Defense. Because so much of intelligence is about big um, satellites, big uh, national uh, means of intelligence. And so when you talk about the problem of budget, this is a really significant problem.
2: Yeah, the Pentagon's the 800-pound gorilla. and Mm And then I'm sure you live this, where the argument is, whenever you have to take power away from a Pentagon intelligence agency and bring it somewhere else, the argument is, but you'll hurt the warfighter. Right. And how do you you come back to that? And so that's the political dynamic that keeps this DNI position weak.
1: Yeah, and just one other thing about the the DNI, and maybe where it may be helpful, and you talk a little bit about this. You know, the problem is that when it was the director of central intelligence and the director of the CIA as the same person, that was asking that person to have a split personality so that you would come in and inevitably, in his DCI hat, the CIA information was given primacy of place. And there's actually a now very famous case of this, which is in the uh, Iraq weapons of mass destruction cases, the CIA analysis was always given primacy of place, even though there were dissenting views in other intelligence agencies. So do you think it's, that piece of it has worked better to, to give uh, more intelligence agencies uh, a fair
2: shake at a voice? In what comes to the policymaker? Absolutely. I mean, the, the structural problem was the CIA was basically had a dog in the fight, and you can't run the run the community without if you're also running your own agency and privileging your own agency. As one former intelligence official put it to me about Iraq, there was two. There wasn't enough democracy. Right, in the intelligence assessments. There were great dissents from the State Department and the Department of Energy, but it got drowned out by the CIA's analysis. So I think that is better now. You know, The DNI doesn't have a dog in the fight of these intelligence sort of collection and analysis units, and that's better, As it, structurally it's better. Well, uh,
1: before we turn to um, maybe more current events in intelligence, I'd like to ask one other question because uh, I agree with everything in Amy's book with one exception. <laughs> and I'm going to read what that is. So, this is in a section called "Intelligence is not policy making." One of the most common misperceptions is that intelligence agencies make policy. They don't, and they shouldn't. Uh, I've certainly experienced, though, where intelligence agent- agencies can shape policy, by the analysis that they make available to policymakers, by what they choose to emphasize when they come in. There's something called the President's Daily Briefing, and it gets the President's mind in a particular place, and it starts to shape policy. So I was giving Amy an example of this. Um, I was doing, um, trying to do some um, diplomacy with the North Koreans, which is hard enough, as you might imagine, and uh, that morning there was an intelligence analysis that says uh, the North Koreans will never agree to X, Y, and Z. And um, of course, the president then looks at me and says, well, then are you wasting your time? That's shaping policy, even if it's not uh,
2: making policy. Can you talk a little bit about how to keep that line for intelligence agencies? I think it's a really important point. Um, How do you know policy when you see it? And what you What you pointed out, Condi, is the, the implicit agenda control, what's in the PDB, what isn't in the PDB, will move policymakers to one direction rather than another. But the example you give also is about the danger of assessing intentions. And we have to have a lot more humility about assessing intentions. You know, we don't know our own intentions about what we're going to do next week. And So for the intelligence community to offer that assessment of intentions, and I think when we were talking about this, you said that you found them much more useful when they're talking about facts or what they have recently learned as opposed to intentions. So I think that's a very tricky area for the intelligence community to get into.
1: Yeah, the example also that I used with Amy was that the intelligence uh, people came in and said, Mr. President, you're meeting with German Chancellor Angela Merkel, and she's going to say this, and she's going to say that. And he said, no, she isn't. He said, I know her well. She's not going to say that to me. And so intelligence agencies need to be careful about what they are presenting as intelligence uh, versus certain kinds of assessments.
2: But so I'm curious, you know, if you've been on the policy side of the intelligence policy, you know, relationship, knowing what you know about what doesn't work, If you were advising Director Burns, who also is career foreign service, of what he he should think about to change the CIA, what would you tell him?
1: I would assume that Bill Burns, who is a very fine diplomat and knows the policy world, is saying, let's tell them what we actually do know, where there is uncertainty and where we are guessing. Hmm. And that's the most helpful thing that you can do for a policymaker, is to contextualize the uh, information that you're giving. Right. So um, in case you nobody's noticed, we've got a situation in Europe uh, these <laughs> days, um, and uh, I can assure you that for the uh, Biden administration, this is a time of extreme reliance on uh, intelligence, any nugget uh, that they can get. Uh, you mentioned that the problem of intentions, what is Putin really intending to do as opposed to what are you seeing on the ground? I personally uh, feel very good that Bill Burns, who is the director of the CIA, uh, is a fluent Russian speaker who spent uh, time in Moscow as our ambassador to Moscow knows uh, the Russians very well, knows Putin very well, so uh, he may have more context for this than any intelligence, uh, intelligence uh, officer that we could imagine. But that said, talk about the relevance of some of the things that are in your book to the situation that we're now seeing in Ukraine.
2: I think what we're seeing in Ukraine is something really new, which is from an intelligence perspective, which is the strategic disclosure of more intelligence, more detailed intelligence, more uh, important intelligence, faster than we've ever seen before. Why are we doing this? I can speculate about why that is, and there's been some public reporting about it. And I think what we're seeing, and I think, by the way, it's a very clever strategy of the Biden administration. I think they are really three audiences for, right, we've seen a lot of intelligence, detailed intelligence about troop movements, about Russian false flag operations, the phony video of Ukrainian atrocities that they were concocting with actors and corpses. I mean, this is very detailed stuff. Why are they doing it? Number one, inoculation. This is an information warfare era that's different than what we faced before. And by by pre-warning, by disclosing the truth first, falsehood has a harder time taking root. And until now, I think the falsehoods of Vladimir Putin have really had primacy of place. That's not true right now, and I think this strategy is one of the reasons why. So it's affecting the public and how we think about, be careful, the con man's about to tell you there's a phony pretext for invasion, so you don't believe what the con man's going to tell you. So that's number one. I think the second goal could be creating friction for Vladimir Putin. He's a former KGB guy. He's gotta be stewing about how do the allies know this? Where are their sources? Do they have human sources inside my my inner circle? And how can I shore up my information? That's good for us. The more he's on his back foot, worried about his own information, the less damage he can do in Ukraine. And then the third is the most intriguing part to me, which is the opposite of the logic of covert action. Which is to say, in covert action, you know a lot of times we know what's going on, the world knows, but there's a fig leaf, and that fig leaf is useful, and it's useful because third-party countries can assist quietly hiding under the fig leaf. So when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, everyone knew that we were supporting the Afghan Mujahideen, but why do we everyone pretend not to? Well, for the Egyptians and the Pakistanis, it meant they could help the United States because the fig leaf of covert action helped them. This is the opposite of that. There's no fig leaf. Everyone knows, thanks to the revelation of intelligence, what the Russians are up to. I think it could be one of the reasons why China has been so muted in its response. You can't stay on the sidelines when the fig leaf is removed. You can't quietly assist when there's no fig leaf. The Chinese have been remarkably muted in their response because I think they have nowhere to go. And that's part of the use of the intelligence in this case.
1: Do you think this was a battle royal inside the government to get this kind of intelligence released? I, I was just imagining, you know, the asking the intelligence agencies to reveal some of the things which are pretty deep reveals that they've been using.
2: Boy, I'd love to know what those conversations were. As you know, spy agencies love to keep their their secrets tight. They don't want to reveal because they don't want to lose that collection stream. They don't want to reveal sources and methods. It's remarkable, I think, what they've been able to release.
1: Yeah. If you were uh, around those tables today, knowing what you know about uh, intelligence, and um, you write about certain kinds of biases, um, and we used to teach about this when we would teach political risk, Uh, If you were to say to President Biden and uh, Secretary Blinken and others, uh, try to check yourself for certain biases, what what would you say to them and to the intelligence agencies?
2: Well, the two that would be top of my mind in this particular moment would be mirror imaging and confirmation bias. So mirror imaging, if I were Vladimir Putin... I would think about this. I can't, right? So we, we imagine that the adversary thinks like we do. I don't think that's the case with Vladimir Putin. So don't engage in mirror imaging. This was, this was the big culprit of the surprise when India tested its nuclear weapon in 1998. We thought during the election that the, Indi, that the BJP party was going to function like an American political party. It's just cheap talk in the campaign they're going to test a nuclear weapon. Well, it turned out not to be cheap talk. So mirror imaging would be number one. Number two, confirmation bias. We all struggle with this, right? We discount information that we don't like or doesn't accord with our beliefs, uh, and we grab onto information that reinforces them. And so they've gotta work hard to combat that confirmation bias. Yeah, exactly.
1: I want to, before we, and we're going to turn to the audience uh, for a few questions, so get your questions ready, and I'm a professor, I'll call on somebody if nobody asks a question, but no, (laughs) But please please get your questions ready, I'm sure you've got plenty of them. Um, We talked at the beginning, Amy, about um, what Americans should know about their intelligence agencies, but Americans get most of their information about their intelligence agencies from Hollywood, so, um, what, uh, if you were advising the entertainment industry, what would you say about the images that they portray of intelligence agencies, the stories that they tell about spies?
2: Well, you know, there's this wonderful quote from Tom Clancy who said, the difference between fact and fiction is that fiction has to make sense. <laughs> So, the real stories are in many ways much more intriguing than Hollywood plot lines. So, I think, you know, and I did polling data, so this isn't just opinion. So, I, it started with a poll of my students when I was teaching at UCLA that those who watch spy themed entertainment a lot were statistically more likely to approve of all sorts of very aggressive counterterrorism techniques. That turned out to be the same thing that I found when I did national polls. And then I found that spy themed entertainment was affecting policymakers too. The questions that were asked when Leon Panetta was being confirmed as CIA director were fictional plot lines taken from 24, about a, you can't make this stuff up, about a ticking (laughs) time bomb scenario. So I think there are real costs to, entertainment is not just entertainment. But But I also don't want to be a Debbie Downer, I like James Bond as much as the next person. So I think for Hollywood to be more responsible, number one, make it clear when something is fiction, and when it isn't. And the poster child for Blurring the Lines is Zero Dark Thirty. This movie, The Ten-Year Hunt for Osama Bin Laden, states in the opening frames of the movie, based on first-hand accounts of actual events. Now that team marketed the movie as a reported film, as a first draft of history. It is not. And when the movie came out, the acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, who we know well, had to write a memo to the CIA workforce making clear that the movie was not realistic. So when the director of CIA has to write a memo to CIA about a movie depicting the CIA and whether it's true or not, you know entertainment isn't just entertainment. So having, just like they do in intelligence assessments where you know what um, high confidence, moderate confidence means, the entertainment industry needs a standard set of words to use about how far they're straying from the truth in the name of creative license so that viewers actually understand what that means.
1: So, I have uh, two other questions for you. One is, given what you've just said about Hollywood and entertainment, do you have a favorite (laughs) spy, fictional spy, and what do you like about him or her?
2: Ooh, do I have a favorite fictional? Well, they're all a little crazy, aren't they? Yes. (laughs) I would say, you know, I'm an old-fashioned spy thing entertainment lover, so I would say James Bond, um, but I would say the Daniel Craig James Bond would be my favorite, (laughs) for reasons that should be obvious to everybody. (laughs) And I'll leave it at that, great, great.
1: So Amy, I wanna close our portion uh, by um, turning to something that you love to do, which is teaching. Uh, Several times you've mentioned your class, Several times you've mentioned uh, getting ideas from your class. And so um, I I think it's often not recognized, the degree to which uh, we we tend to think uh, there's a teaching load and there's research, uh, that teaching and research somehow conflict. But in the best research universities, in the best of circumstances, uh, teaching and research are kind of iterative. And you learn from your research, take it into the classroom, learn from your classroom, take it into your research. So can you talk a little bit about uh, what it's been like teaching about these issues and how it's uh, helped your research? And then I know you have some further plans uh, for a class. And so Professor (laughs) Seeger.
2: So this has been such a great journey. Just as you said, it started off, really it started off with research. So it was my dissertation and then I was teaching parts of it. And then I was teaching this class at UCLA, and there were real intelligence controversies at the time, and I didn't know whether I was gonna have protesters outside my classroom, and I had no protesters. I only had standing room only for the class, which told me something, which is that there were a lot of students who wanted to learn about intelligence and didn't know about intelligence, and so I started doing these experiments, and that really led me on this journey. And so this has been this book has been the longest book in process of the books that I've written. And I wrote it to be a textbook. I wrote it because I wanted people. I want I, as I tell my my family, I want my students to read it, and I want them to give it to their parents, right? I want their parents to want to read it too. And so it was always designed to be a textbook. And so now I'm going to be teaching. The book, which was based on a class, turned into a book, teaching the book to a class at Stanford in the spring quarter. And I'm really excited about doing that.
1: Well, I can attest that teaching with you is a a great joy. And uh, actually, Amy and I taught a course together in the Graduate School of Business on political risk. And our students kept saying, why don't you write a book? So we did. We did. And uh, obviously, that that teaching link is still very important. Um, So um, let me ask people to, if you, do we have Microphones, how are we doing this? Okay, we've got mic runners. So if you'll put up your hand if you have questions, and I'm gonna just ask you one final uh, question as the author with uh, the Pride of Place. What do you want people to take from this book? What, What are the most important takeaways that we can all take from your book?
2: I hope that people take away from this book the most important thing that I think we're missing in our politics today, which is empathy this is a hard job. These are people who work in silent service on behalf of the nation. They get things wrong a lot, but they have some moments of great success and they have moments of great sacrifice. And I think better understanding how hard this world is and that there are real people that are doing it is probably the most important part of reading the book. Terrific. Great.
1: All right. We have questions.
0: Hi, Dr. Zagart. My name is Michael. I'm a sophomore studying international relations and computer science. One case study I'm curious about is how, in the summer of 2017, Facebook worked with the FBI to exploit a hack against a user, one of the worst cases of child sexual abuse, exploitation, etc. This is unprecedented, though, and I wanted to hear your thoughts about whether it's ever appropriate for tech giants to collaborate with intelligence to actually hack their users, and if that's a trend you think we're going to start seeing more of. And thanks so much for your time.
2: Wow, that's a great question. Um, I would say it depends, right? I think what, you're, what, you're, what that case shows is in some ways the easy case. It's so obvious that this is a bad situation that the government and, the, and, the, um, and Facebook can collaborate on. There's been a lot of collaboration also about uh, counter and counterterrorism. It gets a lot dicier when you're talking about other issues with, with respect to users and freedom of speech, Um, And so it's problematic. The the question of hacking a user, right, these are really difficult challenges, too, even within the U.S. government. So in the book, I talk about one example where um, the CIA and a foreign intelligence service set up a website to try to attract extremists so that they can collect intelligence about who might be radicalized and impose a terrorist threat. But that extremist website turned out to pose a threat to American military personnel in the region because there were extremists congregating there. What do you do? This was a very big challenge. And so ultimately what we ended up having is uh, the takedown of a website by the U.S. military set up by the U.S. intelligence community with a foreign service. These are very challenging uh, issues to work through.
1: Great, I saw other hands. Uh, right here on the quarter, I am John Freund. Um, I have really two questions. Uh, one in the book, you talk about how uh, us computer
0: systems have been penetrated, uh, many of our defense secrets, the Office of Personal Management, etc. But you don't really talk much about have we been able to penetrate you know Russian and Chinese uh,
1: systems? So I'm curious. Yeah, what is known about that that can be revealed, and then the other question, because it's current, is: Do you think Putin uh, really cares
0: about sanctions, or or does he just care about hard power?
2: So I'll take the first, and I may ask uh, Dr. Rice to take the second. I don't know whether the U.S. has penetrated the equivalent systems in China or Russia. I hope so. I do know we have pretty sophisticated offensive cyber capabilities, and they're being used more. There's a strategy called defend forward which is designed to take the fight to adversary systems as a way of uh, preventing give, causing friction for them, but that's just something where it's just too classified. I wouldn't know about it. If I did know about it, I wouldn't be able to talk about it. I'll, I'll defer to Dr. Rice. Oh no, on that. you're not
1: going to get away with that. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll give my view, but uh, from the uh, from what you've seen, and if you were looking at this. From the intelligence we've been able to, what, what would be the missing pieces in answering the question that the gentleman has, has
2: asked? So I think the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And I think what we've seen with Putin is a very, to, to paraphrase something that we spend a lot of time thinking about, a very high risk appetite. So when you think about what Putin has done, not only in terms of violating borders, conducting cyber attacks, which Ukraine has been the cyber test bed for Putin for years, right? Turning off the electricity there. But in the intelligence context, who's the one leader that has most violated Moscow rules, right? The norms, the bilateral, tacit understanding about spy versus spy that kept the Cold War cold, right? So if our spy, if our, I shouldn't say our spies, if our intelligence officers, because spies are the foreigners that they recruit, if our intelligence officers were caught in Moscow, they weren't killed, they were deported, Right? they were sent home. There were rules of the road that both sides abided by during the Cold War. Putin violated those rules right, with impunity. He set out to assassinate former spies on behalf of Western countries with horrific poisoning. So this is a guy who is willing to break all sorts of norms, has a very high-risk appetite. So I think sanctions are unlikely to deter him.
1: Um, I, I would agree that I think it's going to be hard to sanction at a level that fully deters him because I think he has decided that he is the person to restore Russian dignity, honor, and uh, the Russian Empire or the Soviet Union, depending on which uh, you wish, wish to think about. Um, I do think that um, eventually there could be those, however, around him. They're not a very strong group, but uh, at some point if Russia, the Russian economy really begins to suffer at a very high level, he will have domestic price to pay. The other piece is that um, he has to be a little bit careful about uh, pictures of Russians being killed in Ukraine. And uh, so the question for me has been less about economic sanctions than raising the capacity of the Ukrainians to exact costs on their own. Yeah. Uh, yes, right here.
0: Thank you so much for a great talk, Professor Ziegert. My name is Artem Trotsuk. I'm a PhD student studying bioengineering here at uh, Stanford. And I kind of had two questions, one of which you answered with respect to uh, the first-hand one that asked the question. Uh, I am mostly curious to know, how do you think that industry can help with some of the bottlenecks that the, that the governments are experiencing? You mentioned data processing, and I'm like, that's an easy fix, right, for a Silicon Valley company to help with some data processing. My second question is, where do you see bio threats fitting into the global risk assessment in the next five to 10 years in terms of just identifying how do we be proactive in intelligence gathering and um, avoid a COVID situation of someone actually building a virus and so forth?
2: great questions so i'll take the biothreats one first so i think biothreats are a subset of a broader category of threats that are driven by technological capabilities and i think we need to improve our intelligence across the board and how we assess how technology could have geopolitical consequences do we understand what these technologies are doing and who has them and who has the edge and how do we stack up against those technologies. So there's a, there's a, you know, a, sta- a saying about you know, our intelligence on red, meaning the adversary, is better than our intelligence on blue, meaning ourselves. But this is a, th- we need to better understand what we are bringing to the table and how the technological ecosystem works. So that's as a topic the intelligence community needs to get better. This gets back to your point, Condi, about who should go into the intelligence community today. Right? We need to have experts in those areas in order to assess what other countries are doing in those areas. So you would think data science or data analytics would be easy, but it's not. And it's not because the data inside the intelligence community is um, captured in these bespoke systems that can't share with each other. So we have technological challenges and we have cultural challenges, right? Which is analysts want to touch and taste and feel all the data. And uh, when you're relying on machines to do that, that can be off-putting. So there are real barriers to bringing in commercial, uh, commercially viable products into the intelligence community, and we have to break those down. What can the Valley do? What can companies do? Talk with the intelligence community more. It's how can they adopt technology better and faster at scale, and how can they get talent in the door better and faster at scale. And by the way, vice versa because we need people who understand intelligence in companies and we need uh, people in government who understand how companies work.
1: we've got time for two quick questions uh, right here on the corner in red, cardinal.
2: (laughs) Thank
0: you. Uh, Hi, my name is May, I'm an
2: undergrad here at Stanford. Uh, And I was wondering, this is kind of an extension to the first question. So we're kind of in a world where big tech is accumulating a lot of data about everyone here. Uh, but they're also trying to appease many markets, not only the United States one, but also China or Russia. So I was wondering, do you think big tech needs to choose a side? And how are they going to choose between which intelligence community are they going to side with when we're kind of getting into this global market? Um, but there's still kind of national restrictions for each data accumulated. Yeah, I mean, I'd be curious to get your answer to this too, Condi. So um, you know, what we find is that companies and the U.S. government have some mutual interests and some interests that are not mutual. So as you alluded to in your question, companies have global markets, they have global shareholders, they have global employees. They're not an arm of the U.S. government, right? But they also need to be take responsibility for elements of national security. Now that's getting better. So if we had had this conversation several years ago, the trust deficit between companies here and the government would be very bad. And so I recount in the book how shortly after the Snowden revelations, right, former NSA contractor Ed Snowden revealing surveillance programs, the NSA, shortly after that, we had a congressional cyber boot camp here at Hoover where we brought congressional staff from all the relevant oversight committees. And we went to a big tech company, and a senior executive at this tech company pointed to the staffers, and he said, I think of you just like I do the People's Liberation Army of China. I want to protect my systems from you every day. And this was you know, a jaw-dropping moment. And so staffers ran outside and started calling their representatives and senators back in Washington. We've got some work to do. Those days are better. They've gotten a lot better over the past several years. And I think the China challenge is one of the reasons why. There is now a greater alignment of interests, whether you're a commercial company and your IP is being stolen blind Right, or whether you are a patriotic sort of national security type person who wants to make sure uh, that we're, uh, you know, at an advantage in geopolitical competition, so those relationships are better than they have been and have been in the past five years.
1: Yeah, I completely agree, and I I think the China piece is important, and it, it may even bring some reconciliation with the Europeans on this because whatever differences our companies have with the government or the Europeans have with us, they pale in comparison to the way that the Chinese think uh, about issues like, for instance, privacy, which uh, doesn't exist. So good. Okay, one last question. I'm sorry we're going to have to go right here. Yes, yes. Hi, uh, my name is Rachel Phillips. I'm in the community. And I think my question is just general, but hopefully if you could give us some helpful insights on us developing a conceptual framework for evaluating what you brought up in the beginning, the paradox of transparency and democracy, and looking at that in uh, the combination of supporting intelligence and understanding it better for, uh, as a layperson, and also ways of holding it accountable
2: and ethical standards. So it's a big question, but I thought maybe you'd have some practical suggestions. It's a big and important question. I think mm-hmm. it starts first with just understanding this world. You know, I looked at AP curricula for U.S. government and U.S. Uh, history. Almost no exam in the past 10 years have asked, has asked a question about U.S. intelligence. So. Understanding what it is. So, you know, back to spy themed entertainment, I think one of the myths that I found in my research was people think the National Security Agency is listening to your phone calls with your grandma and they can track everything you're doing, and you, know, you get out of the bus depot and the NSA is zeroing in on you and knows, like, what's in your coffee cup, right? That's just not true. But people believe that it's true. And so there's not a reservoir of trust. So part of it is just educating yourself about what's true and what isn't true. And then part of it is actually gets back to the sort of cornerstone of democracy, asking your member of Congress how they feel about these issues. Some members of Congress care a lot, but most actually haven't paid much attention at all. And back to my point if voters pay more attention to this Members of Congress will too. And that's really the, the key to ensuring that our intelligence agencies don't go too far and that they're effective enough to do what they need to do to protect the country. Spies, Lies, and Algorithms The
1: History and Future of American Intelligence. Amy, thank you for writing this book and thank you for sharing <laughs> insights with the <laughs>